Good morning. It is good to see you guys. It's good to worship with you and hear your voices and just the cries of our hearts to God, a God who meets with us, a God who's here. Uh, we don't plug all these instruments in and get dressed up early on a Sunday and stand up and sit down because we think it's just a good hobby. We think God is here. Amen? And we sing to a real God who's here. We, we, we look at a real God who's given us his word. And um, I'm excited to do that with you now. So if you would take out your Bible, uh, we're going to do that. We're going to get into God's word. Uh, Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. If you're new to the Bible, uh, just head to the New Testament, head to kind of the right side of your Bible. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is where you'll see the four Gospels, uh, the accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're in Mark. Mark chapter 9, so flip open to a Bible, pull it up on your phone, and get to Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're in the middle of a series, if you are new, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, a series called Who Do You Say That I Am? And we've been looking at the life of Jesus and seeing his life and how it affects our lives. And today we come to this really uh, pivotal moment, a really crucial moment, a really unique moment in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus shows us his glory. We get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus in a way we haven't seen to this point in the Gospel of Mark, and it, it literally is a mountaintop moment. Jesus is on a mountain with the disciples. He gives them a glimpse of his glory, but we see is that moment on the mountaintop, glorious moment, it doesn't last too long. That really quickly, they go from this mountaintop moment to back to the, the reality moment. And as I studied this this week and prepared this week, I just thought, isn't that all of life? Like a, a glorious mountaintop moment and then a back to reality moment, right? And it doesn't matter if you're not a Christian, just in life, you've had these glorious mountaintop moments financially, physically, and relationally, and then you go back to this reality moment, and we shift from that mountaintop moment to the reality moment, and they're doing the same thing in the Gospel of Mark. And as I thought about that moment, for me, the most uh, significant moment of a mountaintop moment that went back to reality was my wedding and honeymoon, and then like the next couple weeks after that, right? And here's what I mean. If you're not married, I uh, just want to let you into what marriage kind of looks like at the beginning. I got to marry, and, and on our wedding day, I got to stand before God and other people, and I got to marry the girl who I had adored for years. It was an amazing celebration, right? Just because of that. It was a mountaintop moment. But it wasn't just a mountaintop celebration, glorious moment because I got to marry this girl I had adored for years. It was a mountaintop moment because uh, my wife is Indian, and Indians know how to celebrate, <laughs> especially at weddings. It's a, it's a massive celebration. Listen, here's how I knew is there were so many people at our wedding. Everybody I knew was there, and everybody I didn't know, right? <laughs> at the reception, people were coming up and introducing themselves to me and my wife, Right? It was a massive celebration, lots of people. The reception was a massive celebration. Right? We walked in, the lights had gone out in the assembly where we were meeting, and you would think that would be a problem, but not at an Indian wedding. Right? That just set the mood. That just set the vibe. They had to light candles, and it felt, if you could picture it, it felt like a club because it was like a club. Like as we entered and were introduced, they had a DJ, and he was an Indian DJ who mixed Punjabi music, like the music where you screw in the light bulbs, and then you unscrew the light bulbs, right? Just an Indian dance, self-tip for you. We, we were doing that, but they mixed that Indian music with Eminem. Now, I got married 13 years ago, so that was when this was cool, and they... 
They mixed like this rap hip hop music with this Indian music and we walked in and it was dark and we were screwing the light bulbs in and unscrewing them and it was a massive celebration. Listen, before I knew it, people were picking up my wife and putting her on their shoulders and they were walking around with her and then they came for me and they... They picked me up on their shoulders, and my wife just picture in this club scene with this rap, hip-hop, Indian music going on. My wife and I are on people's shoulders. We look over at each other. We're just like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, we're married, and I'm on somebody's shoulders, and I hope they don't drop me. Right? And it was a massive celebration, and we left that place, and then we went to our honeymoon, and the celebration continued. Amen. Naked and unashamed. Right, and it specifically happened in, in Cabo San Lucas. We flew to Mexico and we're at the beach and it was our honeymoon. So they had this deal, this package deal where they would give you a basket of fruit and champagne as you walked in because it was your honeymoon. And I don't know if there was a glitch or something and I didn't take time to find out, but they didn't just give us that basket of fruit and champagne bottle the first day. They gave it to us every day. Every day, somebody would show up at our hotel room and be like, Mr. and Mrs. Birdwell, congratulations on your wedding. And there must have been a glitch, but we didn't ask about it. We just received it in the grace of God because it was a massive celebration. Now, we had our mountaintop glorious moment, the wedding, the honeymoon, but, but here's where it turned. The last day of our honeymoon, my wife comes to me and she said, I'm not feeling too well. Oh, sickness and in health. That's a real thing. Okay. I said I do. All right, I'm in this with you, and we get on the plane, and you know those bags that they put in the seat back pocket in front of you that you usually just put your tissue in or your granola wrapper in? She did not use that bag for that. You get what I'm saying? She was sick. She used it for something else, and she used it a lot. The whole flight home, and, and we're here in the new airport in uh, Houston, Texas, and we're doing customs, and my wife was a little bit ahead, been sick, throwing up the whole way. And I'm filling out all my paperwork, and I look ahead, and I see my sweet wife after this glorious moment, and I see her walking, and she slowly, slowly starts to lie down. <laughs> she faints in the airport. And I'm filling out the paperwork, and I run to her, everybody runs to her, and it's like, are you okay? And, and, and I realized we had a mountaintop glorious moment, but quickly we are back to reality. Right? That's what marriage looks like. If you're not married, it looks a little bit like that over and over until the day you die. Right? <laughs> Some glorious moments in health, but also in, in sickness. Right? And listen, maybe even if you're not married, you've had some glorious moments, then you've been quickly put back in reality. Right? And we all have those. And some of you this morning, you're in one or two of those places. You're in, you're in that glorious mountaintop moment, and maybe you don't even know Jesus, but you're thinking, tell me I'm going to church. I mean, the spring, almost summer is here, and uh, it's just a great time in my life. Financially, I'm doing well. Physically, I'm doing well. Relationally, I'm doing well. And, and maybe if you are a Christian, spiritually, I'm doing well. Like when we were singing, I was raising a hand. I feel close to God. He's, his grace is real to me today. And you're on that mountaintop glorious moment. Some of you are back to reality moments, right? You are struggling with some sickness. You know of somebody who is in your family. You are caring for them in your marriage and sickness and in health. It is hard. And you're in that reality moment and you're in the thick of it. And listen, all of us are in one of those two places or somewhere in between. Here's the reality for both the mountaintop and the valley is that God is glorious, and he's calling you to be humble. And that's what we're going to look at today. Whether you're in that glorious moment, the moment's not glorious, God is glorious. 
or whether in your that, that reality moment where things aren't going well and you can't see glory, God's still glorious. And he's calling you in both of those moments, God's glory, our humility. And that's the title of our message today. If you want to write that down, God's glory, our humility. We're going to see those are really two sides of the same coin. And we're going to see that as we read through the text. If you haven't been with us before, we're just going to read through this and talk about what it means. What we don't always do is I'm going to give you some stuff to write down. So get your pen and paper, keep that handy. Get your phone and your finger, keep that handy. However you do it. Take some notes. I'm going to give you some questions in a moment to write down. Mark 9, let's look at it. We see this glorious mountaintop moment, verse 2. It says this, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning this rising from the dead and what it might mean. Verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So let's pull back for a minute and just understand where we are in the gospel of Mark. Jesus, just a couple weeks ago, asked this pivotal pointed question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter gets the answer right on the quiz. He says Christ, but he doesn't know what it actually means. And so Jesus starts to explain and show, here's what it means that I'm the Christ. I'm going to suffer, die, and then resurrect. But as, as you remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago on Easter, Peter skips over the suffer and die, or he, rather he wants to skip over suffer and die and get to resurrect, but Jesus won't let him. And so Peter rebukes Jesus for saying he's going to suffer and die. Jesus calls Peter Satan. If you missed, go back and listen. It's another story, right? A lot's going on there. But we see is Peter kind of skips over like suffer and die. I want to get to this glory. I want to get to this resurrection. I don't really like Jesus that you want to suffer and die. I don't really understand that. It doesn't meet with our Old Testament expectations of a Messiah. And so that's where, where Peter ends, is, is, is in. So Jesus tries to explain, here's what suffer and die is going to look like. I'm going to show you what that's going to look like as well. But he also, in his grace, gives them a glimpse of his resurrection. He gives them a glimpse of his glory that is to come, that there is grief, and there's going to be grief, and it's going to be for you as well. You're going to have to take up your cross, but it doesn't end with grief. It ends with glory. And in his grace, he begins to show Peter and the disciples the glory. We get a glimpse of it in what's called the transfiguration. We see that word in verse 2, that Jesus is radiant. He's filled with light. It says he's intensely white, more than what any earthly bleach could accomplish. This is supernatural Clorox, right? Intensely white, 
as bright as you can possibly imagine. If you turn around and look at that spotlight that's shining on the stage, it's that bright times infinity, right? And it's not a reflection. It's not some other source of light. Jesus is the light. He himself is, is radiant, intensely white, and he's transfigured. And that word is, is interesting. It's this word meaning transformation. But it's not like transformation like Jesus becomes something else, like an outside-in transformation, like he becomes something different than what he really is. Jesus, this is an inside-out transformation. That's what the word means. He's transfigured. He becomes what he already is. You see, Philippians 2 tells us this, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He has all the glory, but he empties himself, and he takes on the form of a servant, and he veils his glory for your sake, for my sake. His person and work is in human form. He's still fully God, but he, he veils that glory and puts on something else, but he's still glorious inside. It's like a model in our day, a celebrity, an actress will do this in our selfie Instagram day. They'll take a selfie of themselves without makeup on, right? And they'll do that and kind of say, this is my natural self or quote some poem or whatever they do, right? And, and they'll be like, this is my natural self. And we'll kind of think and they'll kind of think, well, the glory kind of fades without the makeup, right? You see, what's happening with Jesus is the opposite of that, that he's taking off the makeup, he's taking off the humanity, and his glory is not fading, it's increasing, right? He's taking off the veil and he's showing them this is the glory of God. This is the radiance of God. This is the purity of God. And he's putting that on display and they're getting a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And you need to know that's glory defined. We think about, we want to glorify God, the glory of God, God's glory. It seems like a massive, weighty concept, and it is. But if you could just boil it down, here's God's glory. You ready? It's seeing God as he truly is. Not seeing God as our culture says he is. Not seeing God as, as maybe some books or magazine articles or Nat Geo specials have said who God is. But seeing God as he truly is. Even the parts that you disagree with. But seeing God as he truly is. That's the glory of God. And that's where they get a moment to see. Hebrews 1 tells us that the glory of God is revealed in Jesus. That Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his very nature. Here's what that means. You want to see God as he truly is? You look to Jesus. You want to see the holiness of God? You look to a Jesus who never sinned. You want to see the, the just wrath of God? You see Jesus flipping over tables when people are taking the gospel in all of its purity and they're distorting it with greed. You want to see the holiness of God? You see it in Jesus. You want to see the love of God? How does God love his creation? How does God show compassion for his people? Is it just a concept that we have to try to understand and write a paper on? No, it's something we can see vividly as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is born in a barn. And he goes on to give his life and, and be, be killed on a bloody cross in an embarrassing way up on a hill where everyone can see. You want to see what God is like? You look to Jesus. That Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. How do we see the glory of God? We see Jesus, and they get to see the glory of Jesus in this moment. They have a front row seat. Peter, James, and John, they get a front row seat to the glory of God. And you need to know, that's the moment before us right now. 
I, I don't know why you came today, and maybe it was just kind of go through the motions, but you need to know today and every Sunday, we're here to experience this mountaintop glorious moment. We're here to strip away the distractions, to strip away what our culture says about who God is and who we are. We're here to strip away those tasks at work, those conflicts with other people, those selfies, the constant distraction of social media, looking at yourself, do people like me, do I like me? And we're here to strip all that away and say, it's not about me, it's not about our culture, and it's not even about even this building, it is about God, the glory of God. And seeing the glory of God made manifest in the personal work of Jesus and seeing him as he truly is, that's the opportunity before us today. Listen, that's why we come to church. That's why this, this morning we have prayed multiple times before we ever get into this service and get into this room. Because we expect the glory of God to be made known and made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we want to, as hard as it is in our culture, to strip away everything else and stop looking at ourselves and start looking at someone greater than us. As hard as that is, we want that to happen. And so that's why we spend time praying in our pre-service meeting. That's why we spend time praying in our volunteer huddle. That's why every week as I prepare to preach, I, I pray and I wrestle. That's why every Sunday my stomach hurts, right? Because I can never open up God's word and, and, and try to show you Jesus and not wrestle with that tension, right? Because I want you to see him. Because it's not just another sermon in a series. It's not just another Sunday in 52 weeks out of the year. It's not just something we do and get dressed up and we go and eat lunch. We are fixing our eyes. We are making way for the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And that causes your stomach to hurt when you preach that every Sunday. It causes you to, to yell a little bit and speak quietly at times because it's a wrestle and I can't ever get over that and you shouldn't be able to either. Every Sunday, we have this mountaintop moment to see Jesus, to see God, the glory of God made manifest in Jesus, to see him as he truly is, to, to strip away everything else. That's why we do what we do. That's why we sing songs. That's why we look at God's word. That's why we receive an offering. It's all designed to take your eyes off you and put them on God. Do you see that when you come to church? Do you see church that way? Listen, I think if we did, we would approach it differently. Last night, I was talking to a family in our church just for, you know, next day is church, and the mom was like to the daughter, hey, or the daughter to the mom, rather, was like, hey, do we have school tomorrow? And the mom was like, no. And she said, the next question, she said, do we have church tomorrow? And she said, yes. And the daughter said, yay. And I just saw that reaction in that moment. I just thought, do we view church like that? Yay. I we get to come to church. Do you view church like that? I think if we saw it as every moment was designed to fix our eyes upon the glory of God, radiant and white, I think we would say, yay. I get to do that. Listen, is it possible some of you have lost sight of this mountaintop moment that church is supposed to be. And you just thought, man, it's this moment where I'm supposed to come and do all these things and get right with God. Instead of thinking, it's this moment where I celebrate, where I repent, where I respond to the truth that God has already done all these things on my behalf so that I could be right with him. 
If you're wondering why people raise a hand in worship, it's not because they're celebrating their own righteous works. It's because they're celebrating the righteous son of God and the glory that he would come to us. So that's the moment before us. That's the moment before them is to gaze upon the glory of God. Do you, do you have those moments? Is church one of those for you? It's supposed to be. Right? They're having this moment, and it's between them and Jesus. But if you notice, verse 4, look at the verse. It's not just them and Jesus. Somebody else is there. Two people are there, Moses and Elijah. Now, you may read that and be like, well, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Like, why, why is this little community group happening of of giants of the faith, and, and it is for several reasons, and they are kind of giants of the faith, Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament, but just one specific way they are is Moses, if you remember, he went up on a mountaintop, right? He got the law of God, the Ten Commandments on a mountaintop, and he gave the law to the people of God to reveal what God is like, to reveal the glory of God. He did that through the law. Elijah did it a little bit differently. He did it through proclaiming the law and, and predicting how God would come and pointing to Jesus and being the mouthpiece of God. He was called a, a prophet. And so as you have Jesus here and you have Moses and Elijah here, you have the law and Moses, the prophets and Elijah. You have the whole Old Testament summed up right here with Jesus. Everything Old Testament, law, prophets that's supposed to point to Jesus, one who would come, who would restore everyone into a right relationship with God, you have all that right here on this mountaintop. And so what's happening for the disciples, they would have known who Moses and Elijah were. These were giants of the faith. They knew the law, they knew the prophets, and they have them here, and they were all pointing to Jesus, and you have them all right here together. And they would have in that moment been affirmed that Jesus' message, it's real. Like all this time, Mark 1 through 8, and they're walking around, they're doing all these amazing things, profound miracles, impactful teaching, but then there's this like, suffer, die, and then Peter gets rebuked, and called, he's called Satan, and there's a lot of confusing times, right? And just, they could have been confused, like, this isn't what we thought this was going to look like, the Son of God was going to look like, but in this moment, you have this message that had been told from the very beginning, Law, prophets, Old Testament, pointing to Jesus, one who would save sinners and restore them to God. You have it going on right here. And the disciples would have saw this and said, okay, this is really happening. Jesus really is who he said he is. And so it was to affirm Jesus' message, but it was also to strengthen the mission. This is hard. They are going to have to take up their cross, right? And not just... Until Jesus does, and then he rises again and everything goes away. If you read the book of Acts, they continually have to take up their cross. And Jesus in this moment is strengthening them for that mission. And as we look at Peter's response, he needs some strengthening, right? What is Peter's response? Look at verse 5. Peter wants to set up tents. It's like divine camping trip. Like, why not? We got Moses, we got Elijah, we got the law, we got the prophets, we got Jesus who they foretold. Like, let's just stay in this moment, Jesus. I mean, suffer, die, like, I don't want to do that anyway. Who wants to do that? Let's just stay in glory. Let's set up shop here. And Jesus begins to tell them, hey, hey, don't tell anyone about this. We got to go down the mountain. Don't tell anyone this till I rise from the dead. What he's saying there is, hey, we still have work to do. Hey, we're not, we're not, I'm giving you the glimpse of glory, but we're not in glory yet. We still have to go through some grief, and I have to do that. I have to suffer and die for your sin. 
and then I will rise. And then you can start talking about this glory, and then we'll start proclaiming it, but not yet. We can't set up shop here. We have to get back to reality. We can't stay in the mountaintop, this glorious moment forever. We have work to do. And this moment strengthens the disciples for that mission. Again, everything we do in church is intentional. That's why at the end of service, we say specifically, hey, we've worshiped God through song and through his word. Now we release you to go worship God in your neighborhoods, hobbies, in your jobs, in your family. We, we had to tweak our service order and tweak what we were doing because at one point we would just say, say things like, hey, thank you for coming and we're going to pray and just get you out of here. I'm like, oh, we're, this is not a dismissal. This is a commissioning. We're saying we're going to worship God in, in song and through his word, and now you're going to worship God throughout your week. And, and that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is, hey, we can't stay in this glorious moment. We have work to do. Listen, this is a glorious moment. We do get to worship God, and then you get to go worship God with your friends who don't know Jesus. And then you get to rub shoulders with your, your neighbor who you don't like as much and who kind of annoys you. And you get to think and process through, like, how can I still love him or her? That you don't just stay on the mountaintop. You got to get back to reality at some point. But here's the thing. You take that glorious moment and you get back to the grind and you make that grind more glorious because you had that glorious moment. That you are here today and you get this image of who God is and who he really is. You see his glory and you worship him. And you're empowered to then go out to the grind of life and make that more glorious. But by bringing that glory that you heard about and you saw in church on a Sunday, by bringing that to bear in real life, by bringing that to bear in your family's life and in your neighbor's life and in your coworker's life. And so Jesus is telling them, hey, we got work to do. And we give Peter a hard time for this. We give Peter a hard time for a lot. He's just an easy target, to be honest, right? We're just like, ah, Peter, you don't, you don't get it. Like, yeah, just set up three tents. Like, what are you thinking? But if you notice, like, he just said set up three tents. Like, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, like, you guys have tents. He's not trying to get his own glory. And, and we get a hint of that, verse 6. Look at the verse. It says, he doesn't know what he's saying. They're all terrified. They're seeing Jesus' glory put on display, and Peter's like, uh, I don't know, should we set up some tents? Like, I, I don't know what to do right now. He's terrified. And listen, that's an appropriate response when you see the glory of God. Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the glory of God, and he says, woe is me. Revelation 1 John sees the glory of God, and it says he drops as one who is dead. That we should be stunned, we should be shocked, we should be in awe when we see the glory of God. Listen, how do you know you see the glory of God on a Sunday in church? How do you know you see the glory of God during your, your week? You know because you are in awe of something bigger and greater than yourself. You know, as Psalm chapter 8 says, that you look around at God and his massive weighty glory and everything he's created. You look at all that and the vast greatness of God. And then you look at yourself and you say, like Psalm 8 says, who am I that you would be mindful of me? God is bigger and I get smaller. 
How, how do you know you see the glory of God? You, you experience what Peter experiences. You're in awe. Listen, this is where we get to humility, two sides of the same coin. God's glory, your humility. As you begin to understand the glory of God, you begin to see yourself differently. You begin to, listen, think of yourself less because you're so consumed with who God is. Do you experience that? Here's the question to write down. Are you in awe of God's glory? Are you in awe of God's glory? Second question, if not, are you putting yourself in places to experience God's glory? to see God as he truly is. Do you ever have moments where you put away the phone, you put away your life and your issues and yourself, and you look upon the person and work of Jesus as he is? If you do that, you will be in awe of God, and then you will start to see yourself differently, and that's where humility comes in. Look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14, we see this humility play out. Verse 14, it says, And when they came to the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now listen, this is when they get back to reality. Religious people arguing. Right? On the mountaintop, they're seeing the glory of God. It's, it's massive. It's weighty. Mountaintop moment. They come down and some religious people are arguing with the other disciples. Back to reality. Verse 15, immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Verse 19, and Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and to water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, lots of things going on there, but Peter, James, and John, they come down from this glorious mountaintop moment the other disciples are there. They're arguing with scribes. They're arguing with each other about, hey, why don't you heal this man's kid? He's possessed by a demon, and it's not working. They're not healing him. And what Jesus has to do is heal the boy, yes, we see that, but he also wants to teach everyone. He wants to teach the father. He wants to teach the scribes, and he wants to teach the disciples, and he does it under this broad spectrum of faith, like, oh, you faithless generation. 
How do you not have faith? But then we see verse 29, he says, prayer. And so we have, he's teaching them about faith, but more specifically, prayer. And he's calling out their reliance upon themselves. Like the father, like, hey, why don't don't you truly believe that I can heal your son? The scribes, like, why are you arguing over this? Like, why don't you rely upon me? But also the disciples, the disciples who had been given authority to cast out demons, right? If you've been with us in the Gospels, they've cast out demons before with Jesus' help. We see this moment, Jesus is not with them, right? And so he's calling out the self-reliance in the scribes and the Father, but he's also calling out the self-reliance in the disciples who had had some victories, who had cast out demons before. And you notice they come to Jesus privately because they didn't want to ask it publicly how come we couldn't do it this time, Jesus? And he's like, well, did you pray? And he's calling out self-reliance. You see, the disciples, they'd had some victories, but maybe they got caught up in the victory and not the one who gave the victory. And maybe they were rolling along, doing this thing, and thought, we can cast out a demon. We can just do that. We can enter this supernatural realm with our natural ability, and it doesn't work. And listen, today, some of you are trying to enter a supernatural realm with your natural, natural ability, and listen, it will never work. And you may think, well, Tim, I'm not trying to cast out demons, like at least not this morning, maybe that's tonight, but you know, like I don't typically do that, but listen, you are trying to do supernatural things every single day. Like loving your spouse, supernatural thing. Cultivating authentic friendships, supernatural thing. Have you ever hung out with people? It's a supernatural thing, right? Like serving other people, supernatural thing. All these things are are supernatural things. Going to work and doing it in the name and for the fame of Jesus, even at your cube, and understanding this, this counts for eternity, It's a supernatural thing as you enter into that spreadsheet. Supernatural thing, right? And a lot of us, we're going to do all those things and we're doing it with our natural ability. Have you prayed? No. You're entering into the supernatural realm trying to do amazing things that that require supernatural strength with your own natural ability. And then you're wondering, why is this so hard? Like, why does it seem like everybody around you is getting a divorce or having conflict in their marriage? And you start to look at your marriage and you're like, man, are we going to go that route? And it's hard for us too. And just like getting time with you, like, and you want, like, why is this so hard? It's a supernatural thing to stay married your whole life, right? That's supernatural. And yet, how many times are we trying to love our spouse forgive our spouse, not defend and deflect with our spouse, but repent and forgive with our spouse. And we're trying to do a supernatural thing like that just after getting off work and just going through the motions and pulling up and grabbing a snack. And we think we can do that supernatural thing with that natural ability. No, of course you're struggling. Listen, friendships, community, it's all hard. It's all supernatural work. And you can't do it with your natural ability. You'll never do it. And so Jesus wants to call them, he wants to call you out of your self-reliance into complete dependence. 
that if you want to be defeated, you be independent. If you want to keep trying to do these supernatural things with your own natural ability, they won't work and you're going to keep struggling. But if you want to go to God and rely upon him and say, Jesus, I can't do this. I need your help. And I'm going to go to you in prayer because I cannot stay married. I cannot have good friendships. I cannot go to work and honor God with my work. I cannot do anything without you in my life empowering me to do those things. And Jesus is calling everybody. I'm going to heal this kid, but I'm going to teach you a lesson about your reliance upon me. Listen, this goes against, even as I talked about that, this goes against every ounce of us in this room, every every ounce of our culture. We built a country, a world off self-reliance. I can do this, right? We are breathing in every day, not humble faith, self-reliance upon God. We're breathing in every day, pride, you can do this, you do you, make it work, make it happen. This goes against everything we know and everything we are. It's like breathing in a gas every day. We don't even realize it. We're breathing in like an odorless, tasteless gas of pride. I can do this. I will make it work. I will lead my family. I can be a good friend. Just suck it up. Just work a little bit harder. Work a little bit longer. Take these self-help tips. Take some vitamins. That will help. And I can do this. And I can do this. And our whole culture just seeping in every day. You wake up. You're breathing it in like a gas. And so Jesus knows that. He knows you're doing that. He knows they're doing that. And he's here to call that out of you. Take away that self-reliance and depend on me. You can't do it without me. Some of you are thinking, as we think about relying upon God, and maybe you should pray before you go to work. Maybe you should pray in the driveway before you come home. You're doing a supernatural thing when you come home to sit down and play with your kids instead of getting on your phone. Supernatural. Maybe I should pray. Maybe I should spend time in God's word to be reminded of his truth his glory, who he really is, before I go out into my relationships, before I I speak and gossip, before I do all those things, like maybe I should center myself in God's word and the truth of his word. Maybe I should put a verse on my computer or next to my computer so when I'm getting frustrated or I think my work is meaningless, I remind myself who God is and what he's called me to do. And you need to rely upon God. And I think many of us, we, we see that and we think, well, that's really holy, Like, people who do that, like, I know people who memorize verses and pray a lot, like, they're really holy, and I'm not. And so maybe, maybe I can't rely upon God. And if you're thinking that, and if you're thinking I'm not spiritual, I'm not mature enough to do that, I would say perfect. Perfect. You're not holy enough to do this? Perfect. How do we know? What does faith look like biblically? What is the kind of faith, reliance upon God that Jesus is calling out here? What is he challenging us to to be more like? What does it look like? We see it in the text, verse 24. This faith that triggers the healing of this boy is the father saying, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but I got some doubts. I I, want to believe, but help me where I, I don't. I'm not holy enough. I'm not mature enough in my faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. See, you might think Jesus is calling out self-reliance, saying you should be more reliant and have faith in him. You might think he's talking about getting on a stage like I am 
and proclaiming scripture because you know it. You might think he's talking about like have faith, like share your faith with other people, know more verses of scripture, walk more righteously, like have faith and do this outlandish thing, like be somebody like on TV who, who really knows Jesus and have more faith. And he's, he's not calling out that kind of faith. He's calling out the kind of faith that says, I believe, help me where I don't. I don't have this thing together. You see, the only holy person God ever uses in the Bible is Jesus. He uses a lot of other people who aren't holy, but guess what? They're humble. Yeah? Because as you're humble, here's how it works. As you're humble, God will make you holy. That faith biblically in this moment in your life, reliance biblically, it's not that you don't have weaknesses. It's your willingness to acknowledge that you do. Do you see it? And as you're humble enough to acknowledge, I believe Help me my, in my unbelief. I, I believe, but I'm not doing everything right. I believe, but I, but I don't have it all together. I believe, but I don't know all the Bible verses. Like, I believe, God, help me. I need you. As you're humble, he'll make you holy. That's the kind of reliance he's calling out in this man. That's the kind of reliance he's calling out in you. So let me ask you the next set of questions. What are you attempting to do in your own strength? What are you attempting to do? Coming to church, loving your spouse, doing these friendships? What, what are you attempting to do supernaturally in your own natural ability? Second question, what are you not attempting to do because you know it would cause you to humble yourself and rely upon God? What relationship are you not engaging? What moment conflict are you not repenting? Because you know, if I did that, I would have to admit weakness. I would have to admit, true biblical faith, God, I believe, help me where I'm struggling. What moment are you not entering in? What serving role in our church or in your life are you not entering into? Because if you knew, if I had to do that, like, I don't have it all together. I can't serve in the church. I can't serve other people. I'm going to have to humble myself and admit that before God and other people. And it's hard to serve other people, so then I'm going to have to pray more and read my Bible more. And what are you not attempting to do because you won't? Humbly come before God and say, God, I, I need you. I'm not holy, but I want to be humble. Make me holy. Help me, empower me. Listen, God's glory, your hum humility, two sides of the same coin. Whether you're on the mountaintop and things are going well for you as you sit in those chairs this morning, or whether you're in the valley and things are not going as well, there's a demon-possessed boy, religious people are arguing, whether you're on the mountaintop or whether you're in the valley, two sides of the same coin. You need to see God's glory. He wants to show it to you. In church, in your life, he wants to show you who he truly is. And then he wants to show you who you are and that he loves you, but you need him. And your willingness, not just to be holy and do everything right, but your willingness to admit that you can't, that's what he's looking for. So if you're in that spot this morning, whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley, that's what he's looking for is humble faith in response to his glory. That's good news. Amen? God's glory is for your good. That's good news. That's worth celebrating. That's why we glorify God with a smile on our face is because his glory is for our good. Let me pray. God, I want to thank you 
just for these few moments where we can do what we talked about, we can fix our eyes upon your glory and be reminded, who am I? That in the midst of your glory and perfection and love and holiness, that you would come to me and that you would empty yourself and take on the form of a servant and live the perfect life that I could not, die a death in my place for my sin and rise again in glory so that I can know you. So that this morning, every man and woman, whether they're at the mountaintop or they're in the valley, every man and woman could look at your glory and then look at their life and acknowledge, I don't have it all together. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Ah, that's, that's a glorious moment. That's something we're celebrating. Your glory is for our good. We can acknowledge our weakness and you can use us in mighty ways with humble faith. God, I pray that as we, as we do sing and as we do leave this place in a few moments that you would help us to do that by your power, by your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.